You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The University of Hawaii is preparing to defend its management position on the mountain. House Bill 2024 crossed over to the Senate, where it will be heard this week. The Higher Education Committee is set to take it up tomorrow, Tuesday at 2 p.m. The bill sets up a new model to manage Mauna Kea. And this morning, we hear from Doug Simon, director of the Institute of Astronomy, and Greg Chun, director of Mauna Kea Stewardship, about the sense of urgency they feel as the bill is poised to be heard in the Senate, something they thought would not have the support to be heard. They fear the bill puts talks about a new master lease in jeopardy. Here's Chun. There were a number of sort of technical changes requested by the Attorney General, but the, the larger changes were the addition of uh, the University of Hawaii to a seat on the proposed management authority. They did leave open for discussion the possibility of adding a seat for astronomy as well. And the other thing is they put some clarification around the proposed return of the summit area to its natural state by linking it to the obsolescence of ground-based astronomy at some point in time in the future. Previously, it just said it would be uh, returned to its natural state in the future. And so the bill is being heard uh, tomorrow uh, in the Higher Ed Committee. You know, What are the other uh, hurdles it has to scale? We anticipate that based on Higher Ed's review, there, will be, there could be more amendments. Uh, what exactly those are, are, are not exactly sure, uh, clear yet. Then it'll go to ways and means for decision making, as I understand it. So we are proposing to offer uh, some additional ideas for consideration that may inform to inform any uh, changes uh, to the bill, proposed changes to the bill going forward. Does it not go to a land and water committee? No, no it did not. not get assigned to water and land. Would it normally have? Yes, it normally would have uh, been assigned there. We don't know why it did not get assigned there. And, you know, from the outside looking in, people might be wondering, well, why not have a seat at the table for astronomy? What's been the uh, the argument against positioning yourself at the table? The main argument that we've heard is conflict of interest, that our interest in university and the observatory's interest in the uh, future for astronomy uh, puts us at conflict with um, this idea of, of developing or stewarding the Mauna. You know, as a matter of policy, astronomy on Mauna Kea has been state policy since the 1960s when Governor Burns uh, gave birth, and then the community of Hilo gave birth to the idea of uh, building uh, telescopes on, on, the, on the Mauna. So uh, that policy decision is one that we believe uh, requires a much broader discussion and conversation that it should include many, many uh, other voices and other stakeholders. And Doug is director for the Institute. I mean, how do you see that? Well, I, I never really bought the argument that there's a conflict of interest. Um, I think the astronomy community, given that the vast majority of the funding that goes into stewardship and, of course, all the, the employment and the investments, so, which now is about $100 million per year on the Hawaii Island, it seems to me that that's enough to, to qualify to be at the, the table, so to speak. But um, as Craig said, there, it was identified as some sort of conflict of interest, and and um, at least that bit uh, got fixed in the, the process of the initial round of hearings. I mean, it just seems like you're you're a key stakeholder. You would uh, think so. Yes. And yes. we are in the process now of negotiating leases that are about to expire. Um, can you talk about, you know, why we're at this critical juncture and, and why we need some sense of certainty going forward? Yeah, that's my principal um, concern with, with House Bill 2024. And it, it basically is overarching every detail in the bill and that the problem is we don't have time to execute it and save observatories that exist right now on the mountain. So, so um, sort of long story short, um, the existing observatories have about a five-year operational lifetime from now if there's no new land authorization agreements in place. And that's because everything is legally committed to be removed from the summit by the end of 2033. And if you estimate how much time that's going to take and wind it backwards, that's going to be at least six years or so, we estimate. So I think people are fixated on 2033 and might think we have a lot of time. In practice, we only have uh, about five years. So you match that up against the amount of time to, to gen up uh, a whole new management entity, the amount of time required to fund that, to litigate it, uh, to um, 
fill it out with new positions, to vet whatever policies they come up with the community, and then start up uh, sublease agreements or negotiations. It just doesn't work. So what's, what I'm afraid is going to happen is if this bill in its current form is, is turned into law, uh, then go, the negotiations that are occurring right now with about a half a dozen international federal finance agencies will collapse because um, the University of Hawaii will no longer be a party to those subleases, and we're going to be stuck waiting for quite a bit of time before um, the the new entity is in a position to negotiate them. So it just doesn't work from a timeline standpoint. So do you fear this spells the end of astronomy on the mountain? If, uh, if we don't fix this timeline issue, I don't see a plausible path around it. You know, I, I'm extremely concerned about um, just the practical implementation of this bill. I'm not clear how many people understand the timeline issue. We, we um, mm-hmm. uh, haven't proactively uh, messaged that very much, in large part because of the assumption that if it did go to water and land, Senator Inouye, the senior senator from Hawaii Island, was well known that she intended not to hear the bill in that, that, uh, that committee. But it never got to her. So I feel uh, very strongly that we need to make people aware, regardless of what side they're on, about House Bill 2024. Simply from an implementation standpoint, it's an extremely high risk to the existing telescopes on Mauna Kea. So some might see this as an end run. Uh... I, yeah, I don't want to speculate. I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to lay out the facts and uh, dispassionately point out to people what they need to know and, and their decisions about supporting or not this bill. So this isn't just about the 30-meter telescope? No, not at all. No, no, no. It, it, it certainly is a risk for TMT. But um, uh, I'm laser-focused on finding some way just to keep up what we have right now on the mountain um, ongoing beyond uh, the 2033 deadline that uh, ultimately sets the end of the, the lifetimes through the observatories. And uh, uh, Senator Donna Kim, I know, uh, has taken the university to task over a number of issues, uh, you know, because that is uh, her kuleana, I guess. But, uh, Greg, do you think you're going to get a fair shake uh, on this bill? In discussions uh, with Senator Kim, um, I believe she is trying to educate herself as quickly as possible on all the issues. Uh, So I've had a chance to to briefly discuss the whole situation with her, and um, she seems... uh, very committed to making sure she has a solid understanding of things before uh, any decisions get made. You know, as we try to work through this pandemic phase, we've heard the calls for diversifying the economy. And, you know, astronomy, I know, is argued as, you know, one of the bright spots there for our economy, for our state economy, as well as the Big Island's uh, future. Yeah, the um, the Hero analysis that was published in January demonstrated based on 2019 numbers that it's about $100 million of economic impact on Hawaii Island, about $220 million uh, statewide. And it's, it's comparable to the economic impact of farming across the entire state. So it's, you know, it's not uh, the visitor industry or anything like that, but um, I'm, it's, it's absolutely clear that if we lost astronomy, it would be a big impact, particularly here on Hawaii Island. Then you look at all the benefits to the community in terms of jobs, um, all the educational programs. It's about two to two point five million dollars a year in outreach that the existing observatories sponsor. And for me, the, the biggest loss is the loss of opportunity for our keiki. I'm uh, with 36 years now working in one form or another in Hawaii astronomy. So, um, and as a director of the IFA, one of my core missions is to open opportunities for our local students to get into the program and and have uh, have their legacies be melded with the legacy of Hawaii astronomy, if that's what they would like to do. And it's really, um, really would be quite tragic if we're unable to, to meet that opportunity for our kids. So, Greg, you then seem to be uh, uh, focused then this week on making sure that the legislators understand just the risk that we're taking with these leases if this bill moves forward. Yes, that's a, that's a big part of our, our focus. Uh, is, uh, it's a complicated issue, and uh, unless you are close to it or have been following it or, or understand it, you, you wouldn't necessarily understand sort of all of the interconnections between one decision and, and its implications on other things. So a big part of our focus is on trying to make sure the legislature has the appropriate information and understanding of really what's, what's involved and what's at stake. And the university seems to be willing to reduce its footprint uh, on the Mauna. 
of pulling back from, what, 10,000 acres with the idea that you return them to the Department of Land and Natural Resources. But there are some who might be concerned about the management by that agency, if it can do the job. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we, we certainly have heard that. And so in the, our discussions with the department about this, we're, we're exploring ways that the university and DLNR can collaborate in the ongoing uh, stewardship of those acres. And then real quick, just for the folks that have been fixated on uh, the 30-meter telescope, where are we at right now with uh, things resuming or not? Well, we're currently waiting are, for the National Science Foundation yeah. to determine whether or not they would like to enter into a whole process that could lead to roughly a billion dollars worth of, of support for TMT. And um, until that's clarified, it's not not obvious um, what the future for TMT is, is going to be on the island. So I think the, the economic aspects of the project are still the largest ones uh, that they, they need to overcome. Okay, so, so clarify again, who, who is it that is uh, reviewing this? It's the National Science Foundation, and there's a recommendation from something called Astro 2020, or the Decadal Survey, that was released last November. And TMT was identified as the highest-ranked project in ground-based astronomy for the U.S. for the next 10 years to invest in. So that was a, a, a cue, if you will, for the National Science Foundation to look into that. And no decision has been made, but if, it, if they would like to pursue that, it requires a, a considerable number of steps and a number of years before they're going to be in position to uh, receive the federal funding that is ultimately needed to complete that project. And how does this bill affect that? I mean, if this advances... Yeah, I, um, I can't speak for TMT, but I can can point out where I think it's most vulnerable, and that's in the form of their, their CTUP, their permit, which is actually held by the University of Hawaii, and their sublease, which is with UH as well. And my, my biggest concern is the possibility of opening those up to litigation and some sort of transferal to a new uh, management entity. So, Greg... Then you see sense of urgency with this bill moving through the Senate this week. Is it really just the future of astronomy that's at risk? It certainly is that, uh, and more, quite frankly. I think, uh, as we all have come to understand and, and, quite frankly, agree with, Mauna Kea, the controversy around Mauna Kea really encapsulates a number of historical issues that Native Hawaiians have been seeking redress for for many, many years. And so the implications of a decision to change management at this time and, and have this new entity charged with a mission of eliminating astronomy actually has implications for the broader economic diversification uh, and, and other benefits, as, as uh, Doug has expressed, uh, that go to the flow to the community, including to the Native Hawaiian community. Any final thoughts, Doug? Well, despite all of that, I'm still I'm an eternal optimist. <laughs> Somehow we have to get out of this predicament. You know, it's very clear that um, Hawaii astronomy is very broadly supported in the state, and we're starting to butt up, up against common sense uh, issues that I'd like to think will, will yield themselves to common sense solutions. Um, the main point I want to make is now that it's clear that this bill is going forward without going through the Water and Land Committee, where, as I said before, it was widely expected not to, to, to survive that, it's, it's really important to understand that the implementation of this bill is putting the existing observatories on Mount Kea at, uh, at, at great risk. That was Doug Simon, director of the University of Hawaii Institute of Astronomy, and Greg Chun, director of Mauna Kea Stewardship, talking about what's at risk as House Bill 2024, which sets up a new model for management on the mountain, advances in the Senate. They say a master lease set to expire soon cannot be easily extended, and changing the structure at this stage puts astronomy at Mauna Kea um, for our state in peril. Less is more. That's a notion that some want travelers to adopt post-pandemic to talk about slow tourism. This morning is HBR's Casey Harlow. Good morning, Casey. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. Yeah, uh, when you hear uh, slow travel or slow tourism, that you may think of, you know, coming by boat, like on a sailboat <laughs> or something, right? That's what I initially thought. But a local uh, research firm who kind of specializes in tracking uh, tourism trends and things not only here in Hawaii, but also across the country, 
Omnitrack, uh, is uh, looking at this new, relatively new trend. It's been around for you know a few years, but is slowly kind of gaining some traction, uh, especially as we come out of uh, the pandemic and as pandemic uh, restrictions ease and tourism is slowly, well, not necessarily slowly coming back because. Last year, we saw about 6.7 million people come to the island, spending about $13 billion. And uh, this year, uh, economists, state economists are expecting about 9 million people to come to this state. And uh, there's this notion of slow travel uh, possibly being something that uh, the state could attract in the future. But um, Maybe that's a little bit easier said than done, especially as we're seeing, you know, people flood back to the islands with uh, airfares being pretty, pretty low. Uh, We haven't seen the effect of it quite yet happening uh, with airline tickets. But uh, Chris Cam, he's the president and chief operating officer of Omnitrack, and he has uh, this to say about how uh, destinations are marketed. For years, Hawaii and, well, destinations across the U.S., for that matter, have focused on excitement and energy in travel. And so um, kind of pairing with this uh, marketing strategy that has been done for years, uh, there's also the rise of social media platforms. I'm sure uh, plenty of people have seen and plenty of people have uh, noticed that uh, visitors are more attached to their phones and looking for those like snapshots of like what Cam uh, considers Instagram uh, travelers where they go off the beaten path and they want to get these uh, unique views and unique pictures to kind of have bragging rights uh, to their friends and family and, you know, people who they who follow them on social media. And so uh, slow travel is kind of like bucking that trend of think of it like uh, the slow food movement when everything was all fast food and convenience. You know, there's this uh, initiative and movement to slow down, to, you know, appreciate things and appreciate where you are. And Chris Cam says that, you know, slow travelers like doing what other visitors like to do. They like to visit museums. They like to go shopping, visit historic sites, indigenous sites. But there is a uh, an effort and a conscious effort to understand a place on a deeper level, uh, understanding the culture and understanding what uh, makes this uh, like a destination special. So this kind of seems to fall in line with what the Hawaii Tourism Authority is wanting to do and has been working on uh, and over the course of the last few years with the Destination Management Action Plans, which were uh, partnered up with you know, community stakeholders, with industry stakeholders to try to figure out a balance with uh, the impacts of tourism that you've seen back in 2019, 2018, before the pandemic, and address not only, you know, um, the overburdening of uh, residential areas or the bleed over into residential areas, but you also have the um, natural resources uh, impact of it. And so this is what uh, Cam has to say regarding slow travel. In a nutshell, it's just a change in thinking from the go-go days of uh, Instagram travel and a shift towards more meaningful, mindful travel. I mean, if you needed to draw a parallel, it's kind of like we had the dot-com boom, everything was dot-com, and things were speeding up, and then there was a great reset, and we we thought, well, you know, maybe not such a great thing. Now we had our social media has sped up the pace of life, and, you know, mobility has sped up the pace of life, but now we've got the pandemic, which is not a great thing, obviously, for the economy or for healthcare. But at the same time, it's the opportunity for a great reset. And if you're kind of wondering what exactly, if you aren't like a slow traveler, or you're kind of wondering, how, like, what does a slow traveler do, or how do I become a slow traveler? This is what Cam had to say. First step is consciously, you need to slow down. You need to seek a greater appreciation for what makes the destination unique. you got to be willing to engage with the local culture, the local arts, the local people. I think you got to step back and really uh, live in the moment while they're traveling rather than focusing on what am I going to show people, what, what am I going to post on Instagram. Really living in the moment and learning in the moment. 
Yeah, so forget about the checklist, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, just kind of take your time, go out and explore, you know, but stay on the path. Don't like get in trouble on a hiking trail to get that one shot. And then you talked about the destination management plan. Uh, what's happening right now? They're trying to get input on some of those plans? Uh, yes. Right now, there's uh, the HTA has a survey out uh, to ask people about the future of tourism in Hawaii, and they're uh, asking people about that right now. That's open. I think the deadline is end of this week. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Casey. Thanks. That was HPR's Casey Harlow with the notion of slow tourism. Uh, check out his coverage on this at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Chaminade University. Its online doctorate of education in organizational leadership equips leaders with skills designed to help inspire and lead their teams in a new normal. Virtual info sessions at chaminade.edu. Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, host of The Body Show. Each week we do our best to provide you with up-to-date medical information from our local experts that might help you or someone you love know more about the world of medicine. Join us today for our latest episode at 6.30 right here on The Body Show. Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the vacancy rate for government jobs in our state. Business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So you found some pretty staggering numbers. Uh, yes, there are uh, thousands of vacancies in the city and state and uh, city of Honolulu and state of Hawaii. Again, about 3,000 vacancies, the mayor said last uh, week in uh, Honolulu and another 2,000 or so at the state level. Again, that doesn't count the other counties. Um, And what's really interesting is the state and city, uh, even with these vacancies, are talking about hiring more workers. Right. I mean, the city needs more police officers, right? And the state needs more (laughs) prison guards. uh, uh, Yes. Those are examples. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) any field you look at, healthcare. I mean, the need is great. Right. I mean, some of the things that they're talking about are um, additional uh, city workers for the Department of Planning and Permitting, um, the often um, uh, uh, criticized uh, department that's in charge of uh, building permits. Again, it it wants uh, a whole lot more workers, and and the mayor said we're going to hire more. Um, as you said, teachers, we always need teachers, we need nurses. Uh, the state is talking about um, giving more money to the University of Hawaii to hire uh, nursing faculty because we need to train nurses and, and we need more nurses and we need a way to train them. Well, the problem we often hear is the salaries are just not competitive with the private sector. Yes, salaries are an issue. Um, the hiring process is an issue. It can take longer. Uh, the, on the flip side, people say, well, but government jobs have benefits. They have a lot of vacation. They have a pension, which is rare these days. So, um, yes, uh, though at the end of the day, in a high cost of living state, it is hard to get around uh, a lower uh, salary. So as far as like the legislation then that's pending um – uh, you know, at this session, I mean, they're pushing to hire people, but are they going to be able to fill those slots? That's right. So again, the the bill seemed to be making it through um, the legislature on the state level. Again, uh, another one would um, hire, uh, provide funding for something like 50 additional workers for the Child Welfare Services Department. 
uh, plus additional funding for the department. But as you said, the big question is, uh, even if they fund these positions, are the departments going to be able to hire them or are they going to be in the same position that they are now with many other vacancies? Yeah. And, you know, with the city, you know, we've got uh, all these positions open, um, you know, and, and as you mentioned, the red tape, it, it, it's like, how are we going to get the you know HR departments to either, you know, cut through some of the the steps, you know, to, to, to fill these slots? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I did uh, ask the mayor that. I couldn't have following up on his speech. And again, the mayor talked about that in his State of the City address. Um, and he said they really do want to figure out a way to work through some of the um, some of the issues and come up with more efficient uh, procedures for hiring people. I asked, um, well, what are these more efficient procedures? And I couldn't really get an answer. The one thing I did find was that it sounds like it really varies depending on the department or agency within the city, that some might have certain issues, others might have uh, different issues. And so maybe there's not one uh, cookie cutter approach to it, but it's definitely an issue. Um, And it's something that uh, the mayor said he really wants to work out. I mean, one of the things about you know, the mayor is he came from uh, the private sector, and we always talk about how um, – or people often say, hey, it could be really good to have someone from the private sector in government. But the challenge is, well, suddenly you're in the private – you've come from the private sector, and now you're facing a whole bunch of different hiring procedures that you just didn't have to deal with in the private sector. Right. You've got civil service. You've got labor contracts, uh, uh, lots of challenges. But at the end of the day, I just worry about the – uh, government services, you know, taxpayers expect a certain level uh, of uh, services, whether it's, you know, fixing the roads uh, to, to watching for watching out for a cakey, uh, you know, with CPS. And and yeah, that that's I think I, that's what would keep me up at night. Right. And that's exactly what the mayor said. He said, we just don't have enough people to do a lot of these essential jobs. All right. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was Stuart Yerton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. What is old is new again. There was much hoopla when Central Intermediate School officially changed its name back to Ke'elikolani in honor of Princess Ruth, who the campus was first named for. It came on what would have been her 196th birthday last month. But while the campus sports a new sign, the central name on the facade won't come down because the building is a historic structure. There is a new, uh, a colorful mural, however, gracing a wall on one of the newer buildings in a nod to the elite connection, which school principal Joe uh, Pasentino aims to reestablish a sense of pride among students. Believe it or not, the school has changed names about a half a dozen times. This building is a part of the National Registry Historic Buildings. Amazing architecture, the pillars. You don't see any type of schools like this in Hawaii or even on the mainland anymore. So it is very historic, over 100 years old. So our hallways, our floors, everything. This issue with the name change, so you can't touch this sign. Yeah, so this sign will stay and it kind of just perpetuates the history because this goes back so long that there was many different name changes here. At one time, this was uh, Honolulu High School and it went into Central Gamert and Central Intermediate, Kaylee Kolani, then back to Central. And then, I mean, just five, six name changes later, here we are again just showing respect and uh, the validation to the princess because this was her space. We've just taken a little walk around, and uh, just on the backside, is that, was that granite? It's Yeah, the stonework of the original building in 1916, once they started building the school, Kaylee Kolani is in the stonework. So that didn't just pop up, that was there. Oh, another, t- another thing over 100 years old, just amazing that the architecture and the attention to detail. But it was on Kukui, hidden behind the trees, I never saw it. I don't think many people have seen that before. So just another fun fact that we, we keep learning about this space. So, And so is, this, is that the only old name? 
Yes. That, that's on that's the building? on the building, yes. Yeah. As you walk into the main administration building, you've got pictures, historic pictures uh, of the school and the graduates here. Tell yeah. us about that. So when you walk into the main building, you see a big picture of Princess Ruth Kaylee Kolani and then some of the first graduating classes that go back to 1912, 1922, 1924, 1927. And you see over time how the demographics have changed. And you see administration. There's a picture of the principal. And she's very serious if you look at those, those pictures. But it's amazing to have original portraits like this. And we hang them up. And our goal now is now that we have a formal name change, we're going to work with the Office of Hawaiian Education, get more knowledge and information about Princess Ruth. And then every incoming sixth grade class, we're going to have like a little curriculum for them to know. So I think that builds out a lot of pride in where you go. Not many people get to go, especially like on the mainland. Hawaii is a different place, but you go to a middle school that doesn't have history like this space has history right this is a magical building that goes back 100 years and it kind of just the goal is to perpetuate that what did this woman stand for she was one of the the wealthiest people a woman at that time and she was a governor a territorial governor and amazing responsibilities that she had and so if we can embed some of those characteristics into our students game changing for them in life and this is a school that's right in downtown. Yeah. I mean... In uh, the shadows of the biggest financial area in Honolulu, in the shadows of the state legislature, the superintendent is right down over here, um, but also in that same aspect, we are one of the poorest middle schools in the state and then one of the lowest academic performing middle schools in the state, right? So how do you now take all of this information and just try to perpetuate uh, progress. And, you know, I'm excited to say we have a lot of potential. We have a lot of opportunity. Kind of the rebranding is almost like a rebirth. So whenever I would hear Central 15 years ago, there was never a lot of great connotation to that, right? And now we get the opportunity. And we call home often. We say, or we tell people, where do you work at? Oh, Kaylee Kalani Middle School. And they're like, Where's that? Is that a new school in Kaka'aka or something that's like a high-rise school? Like, no, this is formerly known as Central. So I think we get great opportunity to kind of reestablish who we are, what we do, and now kind of get our name out in a positive light. And, you know, you're not the only school that has dealt with a name change. Uh, Lanikai Elementary, that right. was the name given to it by, I think, the uh, realty company at the time. McKinley's going through some issues about the name chain, but you you folks just found this treasure trove of history, and you had people here on campus with a passion to kind of claim that pride again. Yeah. Very dedicated staff. I mean, this doesn't take place with one person. It's definitely nothing that I did. The staff, all the you know, the accomplishment is due to them and their hard work. They're the ones who educated the other staff. They're the ones that went into the community. They had quarterly meetings. They went to the neighborhood boards. They took polls. They took surveys. And they took information. They followed up with alumni. A lot of people were a little bit not sad but concerned. Like, hey, are we going to lose who we are because if we change the name, right? And so they just validated, you're not going to lose who you are, but this is almost another chapter in the story of this great middle school. And you mentioned you have challenges. You've got a real interesting mix of the student body yep. here. You've got a, a large number of Micronesian uh, children that come. And so how are you, I guess, marshalling the forces to help uh, us reach the goals that we want to attain? So very diverse, but we also hire a lot of dynamic people. We have five adults that speak fluent Chuggies. We're looking for Marshallese speakers. We're looking for Filipino speakers. We're looking for adults that can help students in native languages to help access a lot of that curriculum that's at the grade level, right? A lot of, we teach sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, where a lot of students are behind and working at elementary levels. How do we help fill their buckets and kind of scaffold that learning to get them to where they need to be? Because high school transition, the data shows is not so positive, right? A lot of our kids go to McKinley and uh, some numbers from our KMR, which is Kaimaki McKinley Roosevelt complex, 
the EL or the English learner data shows that 8% of Micronesian students are graduating. So if there's not a solid transition from middle school to the high school, like that's on us too, right? So this K through 12 construct, which is elementary and middle, it all builds into where these kids go for high school and if they're successful. So if you had a wish, I guess you could put a call out, what, what is the greatest need? We look for teachers, we're looking for highly qualified people to teach math, to teach English. We're looking for people who are passionate to serve their community. People who are passionate and come from diverse backgrounds. If you're Micronesian, if you're Chukese, if you're Marshallese and you're looking for part-time work, we have spots for you. I mean, we're just, this is uh, the gem of the community. So we just, our goal is to polish it up and make it shiny because just like all these other buildings that have a lot of money down here, I mean, our neighbor right across the street is a multi-billion dollar uh, residence area. And so we want to be looked on in a, in a positive light and not a negative light. So we're definitely open to having conversations with anybody who's open to helping us and make the community a better place. Oh, one of the newest additions is a mural? Yes, ma'am. So tell me about that. So a great mural was put up by artists and kind of has Princess Ruth standing in the middle. And she was very uh, strong-willed and she believed greatly in her Hawaiian history. She spoke fluent Hawaiian. Many meetings when people spoke English, it was the English people who needed translators. So you see her Pete Grass Pili hut, this house that she used to like, like to live in, and then the Halekeo Ua. And so she's in the middle. There's a, the volcano in the background, and that kind of goes back to the story of where she lay down in front of the volcano in Hilo, and the lava flow stopped. And so very profound history, and when we when we know that as adults, and we can teach that to our students, our kids are better because of that. And we've been hearing from Joe Pastantino, principal of Princess Ruth Keilikolani Middle School, formerly known as Central Intermediate. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect Oahu's water resources, offering tips to conserve water, such as taking shorter showers and fixing leaks. Updates on Red Hill at protectoahuwater.org. From Red Hill to Ukraine, 2022 is already packing a punch in the headlines. Stay updated with HPR's award-winning local news team, plus national and global coverage on Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Help support news you trust. Become an HPR member with a monthly gift of $10. If you're already a member, consider increasing your monthly gift. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We've got the first snapshot of the cosmos from the James Webb Space Telescope. What might it show us? Find out with your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and things we can try and spot in our dark island skies. As usual, we are fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal. And would you look at that? He's on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do we have in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for a trio of morning planets in our eastern skies. Venus, Mars, and Saturn can all be seen before dawn, with all three planets rising at around 4 a.m., the moon this week will be waning, and so conditions for stargazing will be perfect by week's end. And you promised us updates at the time, and now you've got them on the James Webb Space Telescope and its first images. Is that the story today? It is indeed, yes. The JWST has opened its infrared eyes to the cosmos and taken a wonderful image of a star from the two-micron All-Sky Survey Catalog. This image was taken as part of the alignment process for JWST's mirror segments that need to be perfectly aligned before any real science can be attempted. 
spectacular image, huh? Because it's not just a star. There's galaxies in there, too, huh? Yeah, there are indeed. And there's a fair few of them. No doubt each one science-worthy in their own right. And so where are we on the stage of the alignment, Chris? Well, we are almost there. But as you can see from this image, the results will be quite spectacular once the alignment is complete, which should be very, very soon. It's quite sharp for an infrared image. Any uh, background on that? Well, we are used to seeing infrared images that are pixelated and lacking resolution from older instruments. JWST, however, is equipped with the highest resolution infrared camera that's ever flown into space. Hence, this image is quite beautiful. The high-res cameras aboard JWST will not only capture detailed infrared images, but also across a range of wavelengths, including, of course, the optical. Hence the massive price tag. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and how long till we get the uh, first science images? It's going to be around June or July. That's the earliest any real science can be expected to be performed. What sort of images will be released thereafter will depend on the kinds of targets that are selected for this first round of observing. So who knows? But no doubt they will be awesome. Ah, it's coming up quick, too, so we'll be hearing about it soon. And from you, Christopher Phillips, on another exciting Stargazer report. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll look for you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. Honolulu native Maddie Wong was one of several competitors to participate in a prestigious fishing tournament this past weekend. Now, we have deep-sea fishing tournaments in the islands all the time. So if you're wondering what makes him special, it isn't because he wasn't fishing for marlin in Hawaii waters. He was fishing for bass in the American South. At the beginning of the year, he became the first person from Hawaii to ever compete in the Bassmaster Elite Series, the highest level of professional bass fishing tournaments. But how did he go from island boy to southern celebrity? Well, the conversations Russell Subiano tracked down Wong and found him next to a lake in South Carolina working on his fishing gear. What's the biggest fish you've ever caught? I think it's a 100-pound bluefin in California, and then the next would probably be like a 50-pound oodle that I caught in high school. Can you talk a little bit more about your connection to fishing what does it do for you? Is it a source of relaxation or is it the way you challenge yourself? I think it's a, it's a combination of a bunch of things, really. For me, I've always been drawn to the water. You know, growing up on Oahu, I've been always just mesmerized by the ocean and by water, whether it was freediving, surfing, and just enjoying it. And I, and I think it's a, like a form of therapy, almost relaxation, but the challenge, too. It's, it's the, one of those things. Like anyone who really knows me know, like I'm a pretty high energy, can be kind of scatterbrained. But with fishing, I have this crazy amount of focus and I feel like I'm definitely challenged by it. And it's a forever changing puzzle, which makes it super unique and, and really, really fun for me. I couldn't really say that it's all therapeutic because there's definitely times where I want to throw my head on the wall. But most of the time, it's really relaxing and the camaraderie that I have with other fellow anglers. Those are lifetime friendships. Growing up on Oahu, you must have honed your skills around the island. Is there any place to catch bass on the island? Oh, yeah. there's So there's Lake Wilson, which is in Wahiwa. That's where I grew up and I spent a lot of time. Actually, I used to fish for tilapia there when I was a little kid. My dad would take me and we'd just go fishing at the ramp before we had a small boat. And that's where... I don't know, I fell in love with just catching tilapia. You know, there's peacock bass, there's largemouth bass. And when I got a little bit older, I think I was like eight or nine years old, our family we would go to Ho'omalahia Botanical Gardens in Kaneohe, and we would go camping. Back then, in the man-made reservoir, or the I guess it would be the flood spillway overflow reservoir that they have there, there was really, really good smallmouth bass in there. I just kind of stumbled upon it one day on accident i just left my fishing rod while we were camping and i ended up catching a really good smallmouth bass and that's when i i, would, I told my parents i'm like can we go back to the whole i just want to go camp but all i wanted to do was go fishing 
saltwater fishing is fun. You know, I spend a lot of time saltwater fishing, like sliding for ulua, whether you know, bait casting for eel or whipping for papil, doing all that. But there's something about fishing in the freshwater where you don't have to constantly feel like you're looking over your shoulder or watching your back, like how you do in the ocean. And especially well, like slide bait, like where you got to watch not only your back, but you got to watch your partner's back to make sure that you're able to do it safely. But yeah, Lake Wilson is a, a place that kind of was like my first intro to bass fishing. And then later on in life, when I moved out to California, that's when I was able to finally compete in the sport. And that's when it really blew up for me. Speaking of becoming a competitor, I know you from the film industry here. I also know you're a well-known saxophone player. I think it's safe to say that very few people would have guessed that you would have become the first person from Hawaii to ever fish on the Elite Series or qualify for the Bassmaster Classic. Was becoming, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, was becoming a competitive bass fisher your dream all along? It's funny because I was probably the only kid in the 90s that would watch old bass fishing videos like of this, you know, Roland Martin and Bill Dance and just the, these old school VHSs. And then obviously like every other kid who was in the fishing in Hawaii is like Mike Sakamoto right. and Harry Gochima with like Let's Go Fishing and Fishing Tales. I've always wanted to have my own fishing show. Uh, and that was the reason why, you know, part of the reason why I went through ACM. And I've always been kind of an entertainer my whole life. It was always kind of a pipe dream where I thought, you know, it'd be, it would be so cool to be able to compete, you know, professionally one day. But, you know, I also had a lot of also crazy dreams. You know, I wanted to be a pro surfer. I also wanted to play in the NHL. Like I wanted to do a bunch of random things. And it was just one of those dreams that was there, but it was so far-fetched that not until like I actually started taking steps towards it and, you know, succeeding did it really kind of open up into my eyes like oh my gosh is actually a possibility is this like one of those you know one of those pipe dreams as a kid like oh man that would be so cool to be able to fish the classic would have been cool if you were the first hawaiian nhl player too though that that would have been cool too (laughs) (laughs) obviously there's a difference between ocean fishing and bass fishing can you mm-hmm. kind of talk about what the big differences are? Is it the technique? Is it the gear? Is it the lures? Yes and no. You know, ocean fishing, you have to be very aware of what what's going on with conditions. Whether you do you have trades, you have conas, do you have is it swir- like is it swirling? Is the wind swirling? What's going on? Like what's your swell direction coming from? Does it ground swell? Is it short interval? Like what's going on with the tide swings, what, what's our moon phases. There's a lot of things that overlap into the freshwater space, but I feel like for me, again, it's it's relaxing being able to be on a lake and not have to be watching my back, except for, you know, looking out for other boaters and whatnot. But versus when you're in the ocean, it's, you know, growing up in Hawaii, that's the first thing that you learn is to respect the ocean. Right. And not that I don't respect the lake. I, I do. It's just the power of the ocean that I've seen on so many different times in my life. I've, I've, I have this very healthy respect for it. There is a lot of skills that kind of slide over. The cool thing that I really like about bass fishing is that there's certain techniques that you need to practice, like casting into a cup size area, like literally the size of a, a tennis ball that's, you know, 25 or 20, 25 feet away and being extremely accurate with each cast or each flip or pitch to be able to present your lure to what would be a bass ready to ambush. You can almost rely on a fish holding behind a specific rock or holding onto a specific tree or a little branch. They're a little bit more predictable, but at the same time, you would think that you have all of the tools and all of the techniques down, but things change every day throughout the seasons, which, you know, it makes it the forever challenging, forever changing puzzle that I'm challenged by and like completely addicted to. Another thing I'm curious about is the competitive circuit. Can you talk about how competitive bass fishing works? Do you win because of the amount of fish you catch, or the is it the weight of the fish you catch? Yeah, so in the Bassmaster Elite Series, we go to nine different states, or I should say nine different fisheries, because a couple of the fisheries are in the same state. 
and we were competing against 94 of the top-ranked bass anglers in the world. And guys qualified from Japan. There was a guy from Portugal a couple years ago. The way that we compete against each other is based off of an eight-hour day, and we have live wells in our boat where we keep fish alive. And the whole game is basically catching five of the biggest bass you can and then bringing them in alive where we weigh them in front of a crowd and then they get released. And so there's this kind of that conservation aspect of it too, which I really enjoy. But yeah, you know, you can catch as many as you want, but if they're all two pounders, you're only going to weigh in 10 pounds for the day versus, you know, you're looking for your biggest bites. So there's a strategy on how to manage your day, how to manage your time, how to fill out your, your limit, which is five bass, and then how to go and hunt for the larger fish. Are there a lot of crowds there at the tournaments? Do you get a lot of people on this uh, on the shores watching? Yeah. So in South Carolina, there was for the classic, there was six thousand people at Blast Off, which was really incredible. Wow. And yeah, that was really neat to see. That's the most people I've ever seen at a fishing tournament. And then you have spectators that follow bass anglers around mm-hmm. in their own personal boats and just watch them fish. And yeah, in the South, bass fishing is is huge and. We're really treated like celebrities down here, which is pretty funny. (laughs) The juxtaposition of like growing up in Hawaii, it's like you say I'm a professional bass fisherman, they'd be like, wait, what? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, best of luck to you, man. Hopefully when you retire, you know, you can have your own show. That would be awesome too. Oh man, that's that's the dream right there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. that's, That's the dream. And that was Honolulu native and professional bass fisherman Matty Wong talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Wong wraps up competing at Santee Cooper Lakes in South Carolina today. He'll be in Tennessee in April for the next tournament in the series. That is it for today. Tomorrow, we talk about the Red Cross. It's Red Cross Month. We pause to reflect on its mission and the humanitarian efforts across the world during a time of political unrest. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. All of our shows are archived, so you can listen back anytime. Find our podcast on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.